welcome to Scaling the Summit, Radio Gold Style. Your host, Charity Bryan and Sandra K. Sims. I am your technical director, Ginger Aaron Brush. Let's get started. And uh, my name is Dana Watson, and I appreciate you joining us today for this webinar. We're going to spend the next 45 minutes or so learning about trauma-informed schools, how schools can make the shift. Um, and I think this is great information for health educators, physical educators, those working in K-12 schools. Um, I've, I've said for a while now, if you've heard me speak before, I just think that physical educators and health educators are really perfectly positioned to help schools and help students who've experienced trauma um, and mental health concerns. And so a little bit of a background about me. Um, I am an assistant professor and the graduate program director for the counseling program at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. I have been there since August of 2015, and my background is in clinical mental health. I'm a licensed professional counselor, and I specialize in working with children and adolescents who have experienced trauma. So for this webinar session, we're uh, at the end, you should be able to describe the trauma-informed schools model. Um, hopefully this is something you've heard a little bit about, but if you haven't, we're going to really cover the basics today. Um, we're going to identify some specific steps for schools to be more trauma-informed. So I'm going to talk kind of about schools as a whole, but we're going to also kind of use some examples that may be specific to the gym or to physical education spaces or um, health education spaces. We're also going to talk about some basic mental health concerns that your students may be experiencing. I've I, it, I, maybe it's a bias because I'm a, a professional counselor, but I think when we talk about trauma, we also need to talk about student mental health. Um, I'll say this later, but I can't hear it enough. What's good for students who've experienced trauma are good, is good for all students, and I think especially for the students that are experiencing mental health concerns. And then finally, we're going to talk about some specific strategies for addressing mental health concerns as well. So if we were in person, I may actually get you to do this and be a little bit more interactive. But for now, um, I'm just going to have you kind of think through this a little bit with me. Um, just kind of reflect to see where you're starting. OK, so first, on a scale of zero being not at all and five completely, how confident do you feel in your knowledge about childhood trauma? What do you know? What have you learned? Where are you? True or false, just under half of children in the U.S. have experienced at least one traumatic event. True or false, trauma-informed school strategies work well for children who have experienced trauma and children who have not. I already gave you the answer to that one. <laughs> um, true or false, routines and relationships are two essential components for working effectively with children who have experienced trauma. So routines and relationships. And then the brains of children who've experienced trauma work either A, similar to brains of children who have not experienced trauma, or B, much different than brains of children who have not experienced trauma. So I don't know where you stand on these. I don't know if you felt like you were kind of going, ooh, could go either way. But hopefully by the end, you'll be able to confidently really address all of these questions. So let's jump into creating trauma-sensitive spaces. So I sometimes interchange the language trauma-sensitive and trauma-informed. Um, I, I think both, uh, they really say the same thing, in my opinion. Some people may kind of split those hairs, I think, for our purposes today. Um, what's just the root of this or the important part of this is that we want spaces that meet the needs of our kids who experience trauma bottom line, whether that's trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive, we want spaces that are safe and encourage development of our students. So I want to put this caveat here that my hope is that whole schools will embrace these elements, like that the whole school will be trauma-informed. I think that's really important um, because just in one classroom is not the only place that a child interacts with adults. And I think having the whole school on board is really important. But regardless of whether your school is kind of embracing this and doing this as a whole, 
it, I want I will also want to hear the let you hear the message that individual instructors and educators, coaches, et cetera, can have great influence in this area. Um, so even if the school as a whole is not a space that's super trauma sensitive, your space can be trauma informed and trauma sensitive. And that can be especially powerful for students that you interact with. So when we think about trauma sensitive environments, um, I like to think about um, the eight R's. And this comes out of an article from Neely et al. from 2018. um, That's really kind of a good starting point article. Um, So if you if you look up Neely um, with trauma sensitive schools, you can find some work there. Um, But the the eight R's are really about two things. The first R's are kind of um, what I like to call kind of our stance or our attitudes. And the the last R's are what we do with those attitudes and those stances. So realize, recognize, respond, resist, resist re-traumatizing, then routines, rituals, relationships, and regulation. Um, And we're going to go through each of these in some detail. So the first is realize. Um, (laughs) So I always like to say, you know, I don't, I don't say absolutes very often just because, you know, nothing in our world is that dependable, but I can tell you that if you are working in a school right now, I am 100% certain that you are working with a child who's experienced trauma and has had some kind of trauma response. Um, I, I, I mean, maybe if you're only working with one child and it happens to be a child who's not traumatized, but if you're working, working with four or five 20 hundreds of students, there are kids in your school who have experienced trauma. And it doesn't matter what their socioeconomic status is. It doesn't matter the racial and ethnic makeup. Every school is going to have students who have experienced some kind of trauma or some kind of mental health concern. Um, so I think that what realize is so important because part of you may be sitting there saying, well, duh, of course I know that kids have experienced trauma. But I think what we don't often realize is how many kids have experienced traumatic events. And so we, if this is a hard to estimate statistic because traumatic events can be really underreported for a range of reasons, but we think that close to half of students in the United States or children in the United States have experienced at least one ACE or adverse childhood experience. And so um, this may include big traumatic things like um, experiencing neglect or abuse or food insecurity. It may also include things that are like what I call small T traumas, the kind of like toxic stress kind of traumatic events or adverse events like a parent with a mental illness or a parent who's unemployed um, or some like discord in the family, divorce um, reactions, things like that. Um, But half, basically half. And I would say that it's probably more than half. because as you see in this other statistic, 50, it's really, you know, we're kind of going between 48, 52. We're hovering somewhere around the 50% mark, but that's reported. Remember, these are estimated statistics. I think it's more than that. I can, I think it's more than that. Um, the other thing we know about um, adverse childhood experiences and trauma is that there are really significant short-term and long-term impacts of that, not just in psychological health, but actually in physical health as well. So um, children who've experienced more than one adverse childhood experience are more likely to to develop things like asthma, heart disease, and type two diabetes. And um, if if you haven't seen it, I know it's gone around a lot. If you've you've attended a presentation with me previously, you probably have seen it because I like to show it, um, but for the sake of time, I'm not showing it today. But um, there's a TED Talk by um, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, and she is the Surgeon General for the state of California, I believe. Um, I'm not sure if she still is, but I think she still is. Um, And she does a great little TED Talk on ACEs, on adverse childhood experiences. And she talks a little bit more about kind of some of the research and the science and what they found. Um, And essentially, what what I just said is, you know, in situations where someone has adverse childhood experiences and um, these negative health outcomes, they've kind of controlled for variables. And it's really the adverse childhood experience 
that seems to be most closely related to those. So some people say like, oh, you've had a hard childhood, so you're probably making some different choices or you live in poverty. And so you don't have access to good health. And, and, and some of those things are true. Absolutely. But there seems to be a really direct relationship between adverse childhood experiences and, and long-term physical and mental health outcomes. And so um, it's a, it's a dark picture when you hear it, but the positive side is what we also know is that intervention in childhood can, can buffer some of those negative long-term outcomes. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot more treatment and intervention needed for kids and there's not enough funding. And so, um, you know, kids are, it, it's very challenging. I can say, um, we have a counseling clinic in our program and we treat, um, mostly we see individuals without insurance. Some of them have insurance, um, but it is very difficult, even in a big city like Birmingham, where I'm located, um, to find access for professional counseling services for children and adolescents. It's very needed. And so schools are moving towards a little bit of a more school-based mental health model, which I think um, increases access some when it's possible, but the funding's really tricky for that. Why does that matter to you? Um, One, because you care about kids, but two, because I think that there are more things that can be done in schools and maybe not even adding new things, but rethinking some of the things we're already doing in schools, making them more trauma-informed spaces. And so the school's going to even more so support student mental health um, and help to make up some of that gap. So we'll talk about how to do that in a bit. Um, that video is here. Um, Dr. Nita, just to remind you, a visual, in case you missed it when I said it earlier, um, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris and it's ACEs. So if you look for that TED Talk, it's really worth watching. The second R is recognize. Um, and recognize is really all about seeing beyond behavior. Um, so one of the tricky things about kids who experience trauma is their presentation in a classroom or a gym as far as behavior and how they interact with others really can read as defiance, dis- disrespect, lack of care or concern. On the surface, they can just look like mean kids or poorly disciplined kids or, or kids that really are just behavior problems. Um, a trauma-informed model reminds us that um, there's an actual physiological experience that happens in a child's brain um, when they experience trauma. And that really explains most of their behavior. So you'll see on the screen here, a picture of a brain. Um, And um, so one of the things that happened, we we refer to it as flipping the lid. and, and, And here's why we call it that. So if you imagine your brain, so that picture, um, if you close your thumb, I don't know if you can see me on this little screen, if you close your thumb inside your fist, so not necessarily how you would if you were going to punch someone, um, but how you would if you don't know how to punch someone, maybe, um, and put your thumb inside your fist and think of your fist as your brain, okay, um, this, app, this top part here is um, like our frontal and prefrontal cortexes here. That part of our brain is responsible for a lot of things, but one of the things that happens here is executive functioning. Executive functioning is things like being able to regulate our own emotions, making decisions, understanding the consequences of our actions, all those sorts of things. In here where your thumb is, that's where our amygdala is. So our amygdala is really our fear response center. What the amygdala does is it um, stores memories that were scary. It it stores traumatic things. And the reason it does that to activate that system when when your body or your mind thinks you're in danger again. Um, So what happens for kids who experience trauma is their lid gets flipped. Once this amygdala activates, the executive functioning part of their brain actually turns off. Like it will not work because the amygdala sort of overrides everything. So if you think about fight or flight and that sense of panic and you can't necessarily think clearly, it's like that. You know what else can't happen when that's activated? Learning. Uh, memory recall is not there. That, you know, logical reasoning's not there. All of that stuff. So what we have to do the R here and recognize is recognizing that when a kid is losing it in the classroom or in the gym in a way that we don't necessarily understand, it could very well be an amazing response. Um, It's not because they're trying to be defiant. It's not because they've never had discipline. 
it is an actual physiological response in their brain. Okay. So thinking about a kid who's a fight in the fight or flight, what might that look like? It may look like aggression. It may look like yelling. It may look like things like that. If they're a freeze kid, it may look like shutting down and refusing to do anything that you say or someone else says. Um, so what we're going to have to learn is how do we get them to close their lid back down? How do we get that top part of their brain to start working again? But first we have to recognize that that is what's happening in some of these situations. The next R is respond. Um, so you'll notice it's respond and not react. And so in my experience, a lot of how we deal with kids who experience trauma in school is reactions. Um, this quote I think is really helpful when little people are overwhelmed by big emotions. It's our job to share our calm, not join their chaos. So I want you to think about a couple of times that you've maybe interacted with a kid that experienced trauma or you're wondering if they've experienced trauma based on their behaviors. Um, this is hard. This is hard to figure out how to help a kid, how share our calm and not join their chaos because chaos happens in these situations. It is chaotic. And I can say personally that I'm super overwhelmed by kids' traumas, trauma responses. Um, I'm kind of a quiet, steady person who loves peace and likes routine and organization. And, you know, when all hell breaks loose, it's hard for me. I just want to yell and I just want them to do what I say immediately when I say it. And I, I don't <laughs> want to talk about it. And even as a counselor, sometimes I'm like, I don't want to hear about your feelings. I just want you to do what I say. Right. But we can't do that. An escalated adult cannot de-escalate a traumatized child. It's not possible. If I'm escalated, I can't de-escalate a kid who's struggling. Um, so some about some of being trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive is recognizing like how good am I at managing my own emotions and how do I know if I need a break or backup? Like what do I do in those situations? What are my weak points? And so I, I mentioned this, you know, I was talking about my own reactions and I just share those as an as an example, not the only way. But one of the things that's really hard for me is when a child is screaming and being really loud. Um, I can't stand that. I don't like when things are just screaming, screaming, screaming. Um, and I don't like when someone's screaming at me personally. Um, and so I know that when a kiddo that I'm caring for has been screaming, 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 I am not at my best. Like, I know that that's where I struggle the most. And so I, I need to know that about myself. I need to be aware of, okay, if this kid's really going to be screaming a lot, I got to really check myself. I've got to watch myself. And I need to know where my limits are. The last R in kind of attitude or stance is resist re-traumatizing. I put a little note here. Um, so I don't, this is hard. It may be a little controversial. So this is the Dana Watson version of this, but I don't, I don't really believe in re-traumatizing the way that re-traumatizing is really talked about in kind of popular culture or kind of mainstream culture. Um, it does not re-traumatize a child to talk about their trauma or, or anything like that. that's not re-traumatized. People sometimes think like, oh, if someone talks about it or if they think about it, it's traumatic. That's not re-traumatizing. Um, it's actually helpful for them to process that. So I'm not necessarily worried about you going out and traumatizing a child, you know, because the things that are traumatic to children are things like abusing them and neglecting them and mistreating them and publicly shaming them and those types of things. I'm going to assume that you're not doing those things and you wouldn't do those things to your kid. Okay. So what I want to say here instead is we don't want to act in ways that are not helpful to the child or create more emotional distress. So unless you're being really mean and really shameful and not handling things in a way that's probably appropriate for you as an adult, you're not going to re-traumatize them. But what you can do is create situations that don't help the child regulate, um, have kind of unrealistic expectations for how the child will regulate and kind of create more emotional distress or trigger some of that stuff in the kids. And, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later as well. So now we're going to shift into the four hours of what we do. The first one is huge, routines. Children need structure and predictability. And that is a blanket statement I will make. Um, I know kids, there are kids, I know kids in my own life that are adapted seem very adaptable and they don't seem to get worked up over things changing or whatever, but all kids need structure and routine. Um, the tricky thing about kids who've experienced trauma is 
that they don't assume that they're safe places. So I think a lot of kids who haven't experienced trauma um, are more likely to walk into a school and just be like, I'm safe here because they have no reason to think that. Like they have no reason to think that they shouldn't trust an adult. Kids who have experienced trauma have no reason to trust their spaces. So they have kind of a bias in the other way to assume that they're always not safe. Um, And so it doesn't matter actually, well, it matters, but it doesn't matter to the child's behavior and emotional experience that they are safe. What matters is what we call a felt sense safety. Okay. And felt sense safety is kind of this, um, how, how will I describe this? It's kind of um, the way the environment communicates to the kid that things are okay and stable. Okay. So we have to create felt sense safety. So we do that through structure, so um, routines and predictability, okay? And I like to think of it this way. Um, I don't have to worry about what if because I already know what will be, okay? So when a kid comes into our school, our classroom, our gym, if they've experienced trauma, they're constantly kind of scanning and worried, like what's going to happen? Is someone going to take care of me? Am I going to get hurt? Am I going to be in trouble? And so if they know what to expect, they know where they're going to go, where they sit, who's going to be there, kind of those, and things happen as they predict them to happen, they have this sense of this is a safe environment, okay? So it doesn't matter that they've never been hurt at school, you know? What matters is that they can predict what's going to happen there, and they feel some sense of like, okay, this place is stable. Rituals is another important part of this. Um, And when we think about rituals, we just think about how do students feel seen, heard, and connected in the classroom and school? How are they seen? How are they heard? What are this kind of special little things that we do? How do we check in with students? How do we acknowledge them? In what ways do we see them as individuals? I've seen several examples of rituals on um, TikTok, Pinterest, things like that. Um, One of the ones that I love is um, a, a little video of a teacher who has a um like a poster outside of her classroom and there's like there's like several symbols on it that's like hand or person dancing and whatever and as the students coming in they touch which symbol and the student the teacher greets them that way so like if they want a high five they touch the high five if they want a hug they touch the hug if they want a little like welcome dance they touch the welcome dance and so it's a way for the teacher to acknowledge each student and as well as like really respecting their autonomy of getting a choice of how they're greeted um, and so you wouldn't have, you know, you, and I'm not saying anyone has to do that. I just use that as an example of a way that like the teacher's going to be standing at the door to let students into a classroom in that way. Anyway, all she did was add a piece of paper to the wall that allowed the student to choose their greeting. Um, and that just acknowledges each child as an individual. They get a like one second engagement eyeball to eyeball with the teacher and it creates that meaningful kind of ritual. Along those lines, relationships between healthy adults and kids is super important. Um, Just having healthy relationships with adults itself is healing. Um, Now, you know, kids who've experienced trauma need actual, you know, therapeutic healing. They need to have counselors. They need to have those things. But just learning that you can trust an adult and an adult's going to take care of you is healing in and of itself. Um, Kids who've experienced trauma often have had their boundaries broken. Um, they may have never even really had boundaries or rights in their, in their life. And so they don't know how to trust adults and it can, it can be difficult um, for them um, to walk, you know, walk into a space, here's an adult and to trust them. Again, we're talking about, you know, the difference between kids who experience trauma and not a kid who hasn't experienced trauma walks into a school as a kindergartner and they may feel nervous, but there's part of them that thinks like the teacher's here to take care of me. Like I'm going to be safe because there are adults here. A kid who walks into kindergarten who's experienced trauma doesn't think that. They think, oh my gosh, here's this stranger who's going to take care of me. I don't think this place is safe. I'm going to have to take care of myself. So building those relationships is really, really important. Regulation. So I talked earlier about flipping the lid with the amygdala. And so regulation is about helping children to regulate those physiological and emotional responses. 
Um, it is really hard for kids who've experienced trauma and kids who are struggling with mental health concerns to self-regulate. Now, self-regulation is also developmental. So four, five, six years old already struggle some with self-regulation um, because they don't have the cognitive capacity to do that. Children, as they get older, develop the cognitive skills to do it, but they still need a lot of practice. Um, but kids who've experienced trauma may like physiologically not be able to regulate themselves. And so Trauma-informed spaces, the adults actually help to regulate them by modeling and being intentional about facilitating regulation. Um, we'll talk about those strategies about how to do that. And this red sign is just a reminder that we want to share our calm, not join their chaos. So how do we do these things? Um, so as far as routines, I want to I want to pause here and just say, you know, uh, there's not one way to do this. This is not a scripted, here are the five things you do under each category. That's the model that works, okay? There may be some really prescribed versions of this out there. And if you're interested in that, you know, do some digging and find something. My approach is more so that I hope that you'll think about what you're already doing and thinking, okay, is this good? Is this trauma-informed? Or can I revise this a little bit to be a little more trauma-sensitive? So that's why I'm not outlining, like, here's five things you have to do, and more so talking through some questions to ask yourself and some examples of what this might look like. So we'll start with routines. Basic question, do you have a routine in your space, and how is it communicated to your students? Are there norms and expectations? How are they communicated to students? So the communication to the student is really important. If you think back about the idea of felt sense safety, abrupt changes that a student doesn't understand can create real fear or anxiety. Now, sometimes things change, especially the last few years in the pandemic. Like we, you, we never know. You never know when you're going to go to call that's going to be like, oh, two weeks quarantine, your classroom shut down. Or, oh, everybody has to wear a mask now. Oh, we're doing virtual. We don't know. We don't know when things like that are going to happen or even simple kind of everyday things like snow days or bad weather days or or whatever teacher goes, you know, one of the teachers has to go on leave or whatever. There's a million things that can disrupt that. But generally speaking, we want to be really intentional about not only what our expectations and routines are, but that they're really clearly communicated. Um, I think I will say one thing that I think everyone should Visual cues around routines are really important. Um, when a child's brain is flipped and not processing things well, remembering what's going to happen can be really tricky. Um, and so, you know, not just having what your routine is, but having it posted somewhere and having it posted in ways that are accessible, where maybe it's a word, but also an image um, to help remind them. Thinking about visual cues when transitioning from um, activity to activity. So maybe there's a little, you know, red little flag that you throw up, you know, yellow flag means there's a two minute warning and a red flag means that's the end of that activity or the green flag means it's when we start. So thinking about how we can cue students and that becomes part of the routine of what we do. Um, I think two other things to consider are about being intentional and not over scheduling. So transitions are really difficult for a lot of kids. They're especially difficult for kids who experience trauma or kids who are experiencing a mental health concern. And so thinking about not just jamming, like assuming we can switch from one activity to the next in two seconds and just consider adding like a one minute stretch break or a one minute dance break between things. And just having, again, kind of a routine for that transition um, where there's a distinct end, there's a, there's a transitional activity of the dance party or whatever, and then there's a distinct beginning to the next activity. Um, and then also think about the impact of hitting the ground running. Um, so how do you start your class? How do you start your sessions? Um, you know, is there a way to do that with a warm up or, or a ritual or something that again, kind of, you know, announces like we're doing this now, this is what we're doing. Um, this is a play therapy example, um, but I hope it'll be relevant. So a really good friend of mine um, did in-home play therapy where she essentially like packed up all of her play therapy toys in her car and she went in folks' homes to do it. And um, 
since she doesn't didn't have a designated play space to like enter for the play therapy, she actually kept a welcome mat in her car. And once she set up everything in the family's home, she'd roll out that welcome mat and she and the child would actually walk over that welcome mat into the playroom, which was really just their living room set up differently. Um, and I just always thought that that was the coolest, like simplest idea um, of like, literally all she did was put out a welcome mat and it was really symbolic and signifying this is where this starts. And so again, I don't know if that fits for you or if it doesn't fit for you, but I just want you to be thinking about what are some little tweaks that don't add time, they don't add paperwork, they don't add any of those things, but they just create a space that's more conductive for students. So rituals, how do you transition students into the gym or the class? Um, how do you show them they're individually heard and understood? What processes are in place if a student needs to connect with you? How do they get your attention? How do they, how do they let you know if they need support? Um, and is there anything that's just sort of your thing? Um, and so, you know, I think what's important here is to be genuine. Um, I, you know, I, I had a teacher in the eighth grade who I still remember, Miss Williams. I still have some contact with her on Facebook. I saw her not too long ago when I was back home visiting. Um, and Miss Williams was a prankster. Like, Miss Williams was a prankster. That was her thing. Um, she had this thing that, like, we all knew, we all fell for, um, where she would be like, raise your hand over your heads. Now, everyone put your hands under your desk. Reach as far to the right of your desk as you can, the far to your left. And then she'd say, thank you for conducting my annual booger check. Um, and she had this fake dog poo that, like, you never knew, like we never knew when someone would like open their backpack and the fake dog poo would be in there. I mean, we just never knew that was her thing. But here I am many years after eighth grade. And I remember that about Miss Williams. Um, and it's because those were kind of some of her things. That was her rituals, those pranks and the jokes and the different things. Like that's what she did. And I remember like feeling connected to her in those moments. So we had a relationship, which we'll talk about next, but some of the ways like her thing, you know, her ways that she interacted with us, those were really powerful things. And so thinking about how do you connect with your students? Is there something that's kind of your thing? Um, is there a way to kind of ritualize some of this more? Maybe you're doing some of this well, um, but you're thinking about how to kind of tighten it up a little bit. What is your thing and how can you kind of make it a little more ritualized, a little more intentional? So relationships, this is hard. And I think this is so hard, especially as physical educators and health educators, because you're not going to have a designated like group of 30 students to connect with. You're going to be connecting with every student in the school. Um, or a whole chunks of students, hundreds of students in the schools. And so um, I think that there's little, again, little things you can do. Calling them by name or an appropriate and agreed upon nickname. Um, trying to remember a detail or two. I mean, I think this is an area where some of you are probably so good. Most of you are probably so good. So in some ways, I just want to reaffirm that how you relate to your students is really good and really healthy and really healing. Um, I think the only thing that I'll add, and again, you're probably doing this too, but be an adult with integrity. Um, do what you're going to say you're going to do and apologize for your mistakes. The power of an adult apology for a child is huge. So if you lose it, which we all do, okay, <laughs> we all do it, whether it's in our homes or our classrooms or wherever, we all lose it some point. If we mess up, then say it. Don't explain it away. Don't make it a big deal. Just say, you know, yesterday my, I had some really big feelings and they got away from me. And I um, am sorry that I yelled the way that I did. I'm going to work on that. And that's it. And that may not seem like very much, but to a kid who has repeatedly had their boundaries tested, have been hurt, were neglected, and have felt responsible many kids who've experienced trauma feel responsible for the bad things that happen to them. That apology from an adult taking responsibility is huge. It goes a really long way. We also want to model healthy relationship behaviors and boundaries. So they need to see us relating to other people in a healthy way. And finally is regulation. So we talked about this earlier that kids who have experienced trauma or mental health concerns, they may really struggle to self-regulate. 
when we think, look at them and think you need to just calm down, they can't sometimes they really can't. And I know that's so hard because there's times when I look at kids and I'm like, get it together. Like I'm tired of trying to help you like, just get it together. And, and they can't, they can't. I saw a meme the other day that said like, no one in the history of the world has ever calmed down because someone told them to. Um, but I think it's true. Like I get so frustrated when someone tells me to calm down and we do that with kids all the time. Um, and sometimes they really don't have the skills, like they need help figuring out how to calm down. And so thinking about using mindfulness exercises, like just getting them to close their eyes and picture themselves on a beach or getting themselves to take some deep breaths, some breathing exercises, things like that can go a huge way, uh, a huge, like a long way in helping them using feeling language. So helping kids identify their emotions is huge. Most kids don't have the ability to identify how they're really feeling. A lot of families don't talk about feeling words at all. You may be hearing me say this and go like, feeling words yourself. Um, I don't want to, I don't do feelings. I don't do feelings. This can be really simple. These can be really simple statements. Like I can see you're really frustrated by now, right now. I can see you're disappointed that that didn't work out. That's it. It's, I'm, it's not counseling. It's not delving deep into their emotional needs. It's literally just saying, I can see you're really frustrated right now. Active listening skills. So that's listening to understand, not to respond. Um, asking open-ended questions, paraphrasing back what the student says, looking them in the eye, getting on their level. Choice language when redirecting. And so choice language is a play therapy skill that we, uh, that I love to share with teachers and educators because I think it's so useful um, when I'm being a really good parent at home, I use it at home too. I'm not great at it. It's hard to do it all the time, you know? Um, but choice language sounds like this. I can see that you're really frustrated, but people are not for hitting. So you can, um, bounce the ball on the floor, um, or you can choose another activity from the basket. Okay. So what we're doing is we're acknowledging how they feel. We're setting the limit on their behavior, which is hitting, and we're giving them two alternatives. So one of the things we're, we typically are good at is that we will um, give them, we will set the limit um, and then we forget to give them alternatives. And sometimes kids don't know what else to do. Like I'm hitting because that's all I know to do right now. And so we need to offer them a healthy alternative. Saying you can, you can stop or you can go out of the gym is not choice language. It's not alternatives, right? So we wanna make sure we give them two viable options. Um, and then uh, managing transitions is another thing that we can do here for regulation. I talked about this earlier. Can we stretch? Can we cool down? Can we do dance breaks? Can we do things like that that help kind of reset their body during transition times? Um, I would also like you to consider and look into the idea of having a cool down corner in your classroom or a sensory area in your classroom. Um, that can be incredibly powerful. A space where students can go where it's a little bit quieter and they can work on their regulation skills is huge. Um, and it really can prevent things from escalating with other students. So remember, again, what is good for our kids with trauma is good for all of our kids. Um, and so I want to shift and talk a little bit about mental health because I think this is really relevant to what we're learning about with trauma as well. So what does childhood mental health really mean? And so childhood mental health um, is really a range of things because we're not just talking about mental illness and things like that, but we're talking about children like thriving and doing well in their social and emotional environment. So uh, I talk about mental health because I'm a mental health counselor. Um, I think when I'm working with physical educators and health educators, we're talking a lot about social emotional learning. Um, I know the national standards and then our state standards here in Alabama talk about social emotional learning. Um, if you're not familiar with this area, there's a great document um, that's like a crosswalk between standards for social emotional learning and physical education. And so I encourage you, if you've never looked at the social emotional things, to definitely look at that because mental health, uh, social emotional learning and development is an important part of that. And I think that document does a great job of showing how, um, uh, I won't say easy, but straightforward it is to connect the social emotional learning needs with the uh, physical and health education standards. Um, so just some statistics to kind of give you an idea of what you may be dealing with. Um, we think one in five children deal with emotional and mental health needs on a daily basis. So about 20% of kids. I think it's higher than that. I think it's especially higher than that now, post slash late pandemic. Um, so again, you know, maybe 
some fewer than your students who have had experienced trauma, but so essentially half of your students have experienced trauma and 20% have a mental health concern and those may not overlap. So, you know, you may have 50, 60, 70% in your school who have experienced either an adverse childhood experience or some kind of mental health need. So a lot, some of the common things that we see in childhood are depression, anxiety, ADHD, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, autism spectrum disorders, and then just kind of life adjustment stuff. So this is kid, these are kids who like um, maybe someone in their family had an illness, maybe there was a divorce in the family, maybe they moved to a new school, um, just life stuff. So how will you, how do you know? So as a physical educator or a health educator, you're never going to be asked to diagnose a child's um, mental health needs, but you're really well suited to identify if a student's struggling or beginning to struggle. So, um, so think about changes in the child's level of functioning. Are they struggling more emotionally, like having big reactions to things where it used to be that that wasn't really what they, their style, you know, maybe they were relatively go with the flow and now they're just kind of wigging out about everything. Um, are they withdrawing from their peers or for their teachers and coaches? Um, they used to connect with you and now they're kind of standoffish. Do they have sluggish, low energy, fatigue? agitated or too much energy. So again, you know, we're not necessarily looking for a specific set of symptoms because we're not diagnosing, but we're looking for changes in functioning or changes beyond what may seem typical for your students. Um, difficulty concentrating or following instruction, difficulty changing, uh, uh, coping with changes or disappointment, any signs of physical abuse um, or disclosures of abuse, uh, verbal disclosures of abuse. And then statements about wanting to die or hurt themselves. So um, it is possible for young children to be suicidal. And I, I say that bluntly because it's important for us to hear. I think it's really easy for you know, us to think like, oh, this six-year-old says they want to die. You know, they don't know what that means, et cetera. Uh, they may not, but six-year-olds can be suicidal. Um, and I've personally seen this in my career um, and, and worked with children who were suicidal and did make attempts to hurt themselves as young as six years old. So anytime a child says anything about wanting to die or hurt themselves, we need to take it seriously. And that doesn't mean that you're expected to intervene with them directly, but more so that's an automatic, I need to get someone else involved, school counselor, somebody. So let's think about the ways some of this may, um, present in a classroom or a gym. Um, again, not necessarily because you're going to be diagnosing because you're not, but just so you can think about a child's behavior and interactions in the classroom in a different way, kind of a more sensitive, responsive lens. Um, and we'll talk about anxiety first. Anxiety can often present as unexplained physical symptoms. My leg hurts, my head hurts, my stomach hurts. Um, kids who experience anxiety have had a million doctor's appointments and there's nothing that they can ever find wrong, right? Right. Their somatic symptoms. That doesn't mean that they're making it up. It doesn't mean that they're lying. It's just their anxiety actually manifests as physical pain. Um, and often children have a hard time distinguishing between emotional and physical pain. They can't always tell the difference. Um, the trauma-informed strategies we talked about before are great for kids with anxiety. Routine, structure, relationships, so important for kids with anxiety. Um, Anxiety and ADHD can look almost identical in a classroom or a gym. So I think um, one thing that happens is sometimes anxious kids kind of get lumped in with ADHD kids of like, oh, they just have ADHD, you know. Um, and so it's important to recognize that, that ADHD is not the only response, because I think ADHD has become such a common diagnosis recently that I really think we over-attribute child behavior to even typical child behavior to ADHD. And I think sometimes it's just kids being kids and sometimes it's an anxious child who presents with ADHD. So um, I'm gonna pause right here and just say, if you have a student who's experienced any of these things or you're worried about any of these mental health things that we're talking about, um, you just wanna be sure to um, connect with other resources at school. I would say your school, the school counselor is always going to be the first tool, the kind of first line of defense. If you're lucky enough to be in a school that has a school social worker, they can also be a great resource for those. So ADHD, the more structure, the better. So we know what ADHD looks like, um, inactivity, hyperactivity, um, frustration with peers. So typically kids with ADHD really struggle to get along with their peers. It may be really difficult for them to play games that require taking turns or impulse controls. 
So some of the ways to add structure and work with a kid who's experienced ADHD using timers. And so um, kids with ADHD can't regulate their time or manage their time very well. And so having these discrete, discrete, like I'm setting the timer and in 10 minutes, we're going to do next activity can be really helpful. Step-by-step visual and written instructions are really important. Um, Even if you've done the same thing every day for the entire year, and it's the third, you know, second to last day of school, a kid with ADHD still may not remember and be able to walk through the routine without a, without a prompt. And so, um, you know, just thinking about how, how can you do that? Is it a little sheet of paper that sticks to their desk? Is it a visual cue in the classroom that you just remind everyone every, every day? Um, I think the classic example of this for kids at home with ADHD is um, a parent will say, go clean up your room. And the child may make their bed and put up half of their toys and then they don't do anything else. Um, because they get distracted. And so they, in their minds, they've completed the task, but really they've only done one thing on the list. So what we try to do in those situations is have a checklist. Cleaning up your room means here's the four things. Lines on the floor to indicate where to go and where to stop. Um, Allowing lots of movement. Kids with ADHD need to move. All kids need to move. I think kids who've experienced anxiety, depression, everybody needs to move and they need to move a lot. Um, So let them let them move. Um, regular breaks throughout the day um, and some signal, signals for needing help. How, how can they get your attention without blurting or screaming or running up to you or whatever? So thinking about depression. So one of the important things to remember about childhood depression is that it can present as sadness. It can also present as irritability. It's not uncommon for a child who experienced depression to be super irritable. Okay. So I think when we think depression, we often have this kind of idea of here's the sad, mopey, lonely kid who's a loner. And that can be it sometimes, but also can just be the grumpy curmudgeon kid that you're like, that dude's an old soul or whatever. Um, and, and those kids are depressed too. So you want to be thinking about both of those things. Um, kids who've experienced depression or experiencing depression often has a, have an actual physical slowdown in their body. Things move slower. Their brain moves slower. Things move slower. They may physically, there's actually a symptom called psychomotor, psychomotor retardation where they actually like walk slower. They can appear like they're in slow motion. So one of the things that we want to do is we want to activate their bodies. It's actually a very common treatment goal um, in therapy for depression is to get behavior activation, to get people moving their bodies and doing things. Um, kids with depression may also be struggling with appetite and sleep disturbances. So sleeping too much, not enough, eating too much, not enough. Um, and so, um, I think a final thing that you can do, I mean, I think having kids who are depressed moving their bodies is one of the most powerful things we can do for them. Um, so if you can get them up and moving in your space, that's huge. Um, the other thing we can do is help them with their positive self-talk. So kids who are experiencing depression tend to be really hard on themselves and they tend to just think like, there's no point. There's no point in me doing this. I'm not any good. They'll miss, you know, they'll, they'll step up to bat. They'll miss one time and they'll say, well, this is pointless. I know I wasn't going to be any good at it and they don't want to do it anymore. And so um, making statements um, that counter that saying like, you know, that was a good try. You can keep trying. Um, you know, it's fun. You know, it, it's important to play, even if you're not perfect, et cetera, et cetera, can really help students with that. Oppositional, oppositional defiant disorder. So this is a tough one. <laughs> so oppositional defiant disorder is a, is a mental health disorder. That it's not just, we're not talking about a basic kind of tough to deal with kid. We're often talking about kids who've experienced really significant trauma and they have a, a deep deep rooted need to defy any sort of authority. Um, and it's, it's almost all the time. Um, they, kids with oppositional defiant may also sabotage positive things. And so a classic example is a kid that I worked with way back in my internship who, um, was in a residential facility and we had like a token system, a token economy where they can like get a certain number of stickers and earn things. And she got, she earned all of her stickers and like some of the direct care staff was like, wow, look at that. You earned five stickers this week. You get to go to XYZ party on Saturday. And the student picked up her paper with the stickers on it and just tore it. 
and dropped it at the feet of the staff member. So like, obviously she got in trouble and didn't get to go to the party. Um, but that's like classic. So they not only do they defy, but they sabotage when things are going well. Um, and so as tricky as it is, our focus with these kids really needs to be relationships, like starting fresh every day, not holding it against them, trying to remember key things about them, areas of interest, um, and consistency is huge. If you're working with a kid with oppositional defiant disorder, you should be the brick wall that they run up against every single day. And I'm not, I mean that nicely, not meanly, just that like, you should always be there. You should always be the same. The expectation should always be the same. That's really important for them. And keep calm. De-escalation cannot occur if you're escalated. And so, so much of a trauma responsive sensitive space is the regulation of adults. Can we regulate ourselves? How do we regulate ourselves? How do we keep ourselves regulated? So to wrap things up, um, I really am sure. I don't even know who's watching this webinar and I don't know what you're doing or where, where, you're, where you're doing your work, but um, I am sure that many of you are likely employing some of these ideas and techniques already. You're already have routines. You already have rituals. You already have great relationships with your students. So my hope is that just with this information, it kind of brings new light to, or maybe a new lens for understanding your students' behaviors and your experiences. And maybe you can look at next steps being thinking about some of your routines, your rituals, and your, and the things that you're doing in your classroom and thinking about how can I take this one step further, or how can I rethink this where I'm not doing more, I'm just doing this part differently. Um, so I appreciate your attention today. I appreciate your willingness to think about how we could better serve our students. Um, I've linked a couple of um, things here. Um, you don't have these links, I don't think, but, um, but these are the titles. Um, and so um, the Treatment and Services Adaptation Center, Resiliency, Hope, and Wellness in Schools is a resources. The Trauma and Learning Policy Initiative has some great resources. Um, National Education Association information on trauma in schools is helpful. And then the American School Counseling Association also has something really specific for school counselors, but it's a statement about what we, you know, kind of what the counseling profession um, says about um, trauma-informed school spaces. So the National Education Association section on trauma in schools is great. Um, if you just Google trauma-informed schools, you'll find a lot of information out there. As I said earlier, there's some really comprehensive type models that maybe do outline more rigidly what to do. But I think all of you who are already engaged with students can use take this information and make some changes to your practice in a way that will be really meaningful for your students. Um, so if you have any questions or would like to follow up um, on this presentation, I have my information here, my email address. Um, watsondm at uab.edu. I do appreciate your attendance and I hope that you will be well um, and I appreciate your time. Thanks so much.